Well, I want you to uh, maybe imagine for a moment that you're holding a large gemstone. And that would be really nice, wouldn't it, if you, we were all able to hold a, a large gemstone and call it our own, or maybe just a prism, which is a little less uh, exciting. But imagine you're holding a, a gemstone or prism with facets, and as you turn it ever so slightly, you're holding it in the light and you turn it, those facets, they, they catch new colors, right? And, they, and they, they catch new lines and shapes with every millimeter of rotation. What you're looking at seems to look different, though it's not changing in structure or form, but the light is hitting it. And it's just hard to not keep looking at it, right? Almost like a fire that's continually changing as it burns. It's hard to look away. And I know that no analogy is perfect, but I think Scripture is kind of like this gemstone that we hold and we turn. And maybe some of you have heard me describe it this way. As we turn it, so to speak, together through the course of our lives, staying curious and staying committed, the Scripture, this story, it catches new light, catches fresh insight, and it catches depth for us. More of what's already there and remains there is illuminated, I believe, and it's revealed over the course of our lives, come what may. And I think this is actually what Jesus was after at the end of Matthew 13 when he told his disciples this. He said, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, and he's training them as scribes for the kingdom of heaven, he said, every scribe is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In other words, expect the gospel to surprise and to challenge you. Expect new wonder and mystery and assurance in this one big and often complex story. Because that's what it is. Now as we turn to the, the, the story of Ruth today, which is, I would say is the gospel of Ruth today. Let me, let me just take the analogy of the prism or the gemstone a little further. When I was shopping for an engagement ring for Ashley, my wife, which is always an intimidating thing, uh, I remember the jeweler bringing out a few diamonds and laying them on that familiar black velvet cloth. And I had a small savings at the time. I had a very meager income that was enhanced only by a strict diet of ramen noodles and the occasional Taco Bell. And uh, so in an attempt to upsell me, he brought out some larger and finer stones, that, uh, finer ones than I could afford, but there they are. But the thing is this, even those smaller stones, they look somehow larger and they look somehow finer against that black fabric, more brilliant, more clear. And I think the story of Ruth is like so many of the stories of God's people in the Old Testament and throughout. It's set against the deep blackness of a hard and hostile world. And that's where its beauty becomes more radiant, clear, true. In these stories, the light of Yahweh, God's presence, if detectable at all, sometimes it just feels alien and it feels remote. The light is hard to catch on some of the facets of the beauty, these beautiful stories. And we feel some of that in the story of Ruth. But I think in the story of Ruth, as, as it moves along, the light of hope actually begins to bounce and it begins to reflect as, as, uh, and refract as flashes of not only this faithful God who is present there uh, makes himself known, but also of their promised Messiah, of the story to come, of what they await, as this promised Messiah actually finds cracks through the darkness of the scarcity and the grief and the loss and the fear that they're feeling. I hope you'll have time this week to, to read all four chapters of Ruth. And I'm going to try to summarize it today and help us to think about why this truly is rich with the gospel. 
the influential Princeton theologian B.B. Uh, Warfield, he described the Old Testament with a different but related analogy, another one that had to do with light. He said this about the Old Testament. It's like a richly furnished but dimly lit room. Only when the light is turned on in the person and the work of Jesus do the contents of the room become truly clear. Jesus is there. He's in the Old Testament. And as you know, this is how we read the Bible historically. It is one story. We read it in some sense back to front in the way that the resurrected Jesus himself taught us to in Luke 24. On the road to Emmaus with two travelers, Luke says this. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's why we read the scriptures this way. Jesus taught us to. So the point being is, you know, for us today is Jesus shows up big time in this seemingly obscure story. So let's just take that gemstone a little bit and turn it. And I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna, I can't hit all the, the, the beautiful facets of this stone and, you know, of this story today, but I want to hit some of them. So let's turn the stone a little bit. Immediately before the story of Ruth opens, we get a very clear context because the book of Judge, Judges has just closed with these cryptic words. Do you know what they were? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's awful to most of us. Maybe to some of us, that's, oh, that sounds great. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, but trust me, it was empirically awful for those living in those days, and that's the point being made. Elimelech and his family, they're living smack in the middle of a dark time of moral decay, of unchecked corruption, uh, societally and individually, significant vulnerability for women, which has been a societal constant that was particularly acute in the ancient world. And whether or not it suits our modern sensibilities, what we find in this story, these patriarchal standards, they show up, the standards of Judaism that show up, at their best, in this dark world, they sought to protect especially vulnerable women in an, in an especially dark, dangerous, and difficult time. In fact, they sought to advance the interests of family because, unlike Increasingly, the way we think about family and connection, family was everything to virtually everyone. Family wasn't just livelihood, y'all. It was survival. It was to be preserved above all else one way or the other. And so, at best, we could say that this patriarchy was about responsibility and care. And we see it enacted in this story. And at worst, and we've seen it through every era, it devolves into manipulation and abuse. So that's part of the backdrop, the blackness. The reality is in this story. Whenever we read history and scripture, though, and this is important for us as we look back, as we always read the stories and read history, we should be careful to guard against what historians and what philosophers call presentism. How many of you have heard of that word? Trust me, it's a real word. Presentism. That assumes our contemporary way of life and our sensibilities would always have been the better way in times past. Like that we could know and understand as if we see and know all from our modern enlightened tower. They should have done it like this. And their reasons, whatever they happen to be, that we can't relate to, were wrong. And I think we do well just to remember that one day, probably not too far away, a generation will be deciding what of our life and what of our times deserves to be criticized. Fairly or not, or even canceled. 
The past, we know, is a mixed bag. And we know why it is. The future will be no exception. The present certainly isn't. But none of it will be the final word, is what our gospel tells us. So we can look back and see God at work. We can look back and see the beauty. We can look back and hold the tension, can't we? In chapter 1 of our story, we find out that this man, Elimelech, chooses to take his wife and to take his two sons from their homeland and community out into a potentially deeper darkness, into Moab, among a, a people of strange ways and of strange gods, at least in that part, that era of history. And we're told that he went to sojourn, which maybe means he went out there to try to find some better economic prospects as a famine is on the horizon. We don't know if it had already begun to set in or after, but the famine is becoming real, and so he leaves we don't know why, but we know that doing, what's, uh, that, uh, we know that doing what seemed right in his own eyes, it actually was a mistake from the outset. Elimelech dies. Naomi and her sons, they make it work for a decade. Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women, with presumably benefiting at least to some degree from some cultural assimilation that's going on there, fitting in, working it out. But they also die. In the course of about 10 years, and apparently they, they die together, it seems to read, probably due to violence, because if it was sickness or plague, it probably would have hit the women too, but they've died. And now these women, these three women are widows without status, without protection, and without resources. No guarantees, and they are facing starvation. It's that black. It's that difficult. But we find out that all is not lost. It seems uh, that there's bread back home in Bethlehem, which incidentally means simply house of bread, Bethlehem. So the three hungry widows, they set out on what was probably a 70 to 100 mile journey, depending on where they started, would have taken them a week. And at some point in this journey, chapter one tells us that Naomi is deeply pained. She's thinking about it. She's weighing the whole thing. She's pained and she urges her daughters-in-law to just return to their homeland. Just go back. It's a moment of desperation. Maybe the hunger pains are so strong and she can't imagine that it's going to be any better when they get there. She figures it might be better to roll the dice with her own Moabite mothers. Certainly not with her because look what's happened already. But it says she blessed them and then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. What a moment. What happens? Orpah? To her, Moab sounds better. So she returns. Ruth chooses Bethlehem, the house of bread, famously saying in verses 16 and 17, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, also if anything but death parts me from you. One biblical scholar, he puts it this way, kind of, he says, these women are, are choosing between the prospects of nothing plus Yahweh in Bethlehem, or something, maybe, minus Yahweh in Moab. But what is Ruth saying to Naomi? I'll take nothing plus Yahweh plus you. I'll go to Bethlehem if that's where you're going. 
And this tells us that she's going to take a broken Naomi who still seemed to understand her life in terms of the intervening work of God. How on earth, having suffered what she suffered, could she still see her life in terms of the intervening work of God? After all she's been through, Naomi is living the Psalms. She's writing them and, and crying out the Psalms in some sense before they've even been written. With a grinding hunger in her belly, she simultaneously she acknowledges the pain and the loss of living in the world as it really is, seemingly inescapably, while she still, get this, she's resisting the impulse to sum up God on the basis of her present circumstances. Though she says she feels his hand is against her, somehow he is still the object of her expectations. You can almost hear the disciples in some sense saying, to whom shall we turn? You have the words of life. And I think Naomi for us is is this picture, this facet of her life, it's an archetype of true faith. She is brutally honest about the present darkness, but she's still longing for the light. She's still seeking blessing, that God can bless Orpah and can bless Ruth. She's still humbly and she's deferentially, she's oriented toward what the ancients called Yahweh God's hesed. That He will be faithful even when we aren't. That His loving kindness is resilient and He will mysteriously intervene even if we can't see it. He will provide even in the most rugged of stories. And you find this kind of faith, friends, you know, all over the developing world. And I don't know if you've ever been around it, but it's, whew, it's challenging. People with nothing. Who for them, God is everything. And to be trusted. It's a faith that's substantiated by hope. It's evidenced by the unseen. It's faith as we understand it biblically and scripturally. For Naomi, for the psalmist, for us, even when we have little but to scream at God through a hot face and through hot tears, and you've probably done it, he is still the inescapable object of, uh, and even the subject of our stories. He must be. So these two widows come to the house of bread at the beginning of the barley harvest. What timing. God is already providing. And in chapter 2, Ruth is immediately, she's out in the field picking up leftovers of grain, gleaning what's been missed by the reapers. And this wasn't her just sneaking out to get what might have been left. This was her acting upon the providence and the provision of God himself. This is how Yahweh God has already provided for people like her, for the widow and for the poor. He commanded in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 that these gleanings of grain, what falls, even what should be left, are to be devoted to those who don't have anything else, who don't have their own provisions, because they belong, and they must eat. Even portions of the land left for them to be able to work and have the dignity of work to glean. So she's out there. And in this way, Ruth is already learning that Naomi's Yahweh is at work. And that her life, it isn't subject to blind determinism. It isn't, she's not a, a cork bobbing around on the seas of chance. And as it happens, this land that she finds herself on, this is such an important pivot point. It belongs to a distant relative named Boaz. I love that name. 
a man of means in the same clan as her father, her late father-in-law, Elimelech. It's not chance. And it turns out that Boaz is he's more than a kind and a generous man who, he, who offers her the best place to find, you know, in the field to gather grain. He actually wants to make sure that she's safe from sexual assault because it's, it's a reality. It's in the story. And according to another stipulation here in the Leveret Law, he's also a goel, which basically means next of kin, but it's, it's rich with meaning and expectation. Again, not just a kind man who's taking care of her and providing for her. He's a goel. This distinction comes with a right and it comes with a responsibility to help the family of deceased men who are in his clan. To offer the prospect that, that Elimelech's family would not die out completely under the weight of, of misfortune and of poverty or even their self-inflicted suffering. Bad decisions doing what seemed right in their own eyes. This is why he's called, Boaz is called a kinsman redeemer. Maybe you've heard that. Because Naomi, actually, she still owns the land that belonged to Elimelech and that he left in Judah 10 years prior. And so the kinsman redeemer can buy that land from her. They can join estates. And then she and Ruth will be provided for as part of the immediate family. But we get to some significant suspense here. We find out that this whole situation is more complicated. Well, first we find out that Boaz is not the immediate next of kin, this man who seems to care. We also find out that the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, has a legal responsibility to act as a living brother to the deceased, to marry his widow in the hopes of conceiving an heir through her. And in this case, because of Ruth's age and Naomi's age, Ruth is the one who this Goel would have to marry to fulfill the leveret expectation and law. So in this case, the next of kin must marry Ruth, and then their firstborn child, get this, will not be his, will not belong to the Redeemer, won't be his heir, will be the heir of Elimelech and Kilion. So what does that mean? Like, let's just distill it. It means it's just charity. It's just charity. The Redeemer is not gaining the land or a child. He's paying for land that's going to go to somebody else someday. That child is not going to be his own. What he's doing is, in joining the estates and all of this, he basically just has more mouths to feed. Life's more expensive. And the land that he paid for, again, it's not going to be his later on. And as I said, Boaz is not Naomi's next of kin. But the man who is... He doesn't want to take the losses I just mentioned. All he can see is that it will co complicate his own situation. His own, the inheritance of his own children. No thank you. I don't want any part of any of that. He has no room in his imagination for a bigger blessing. A more beautiful reality. And it doesn't seem that way to him, but Boaz does, and he is the Goel next in line. We don't even get the name of the guy before him. And at one point, Boaz refers to him literally in the Hebrew, so-and-so. So Boaz proves to be everything so-and-so isn't, saying, I will perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Who is this man in such a dark time? 
As it turns out, not everyone is doing their own thing for their own interests. Boaz becomes the embodiment of what Israel called Yahweh's has said, as I mentioned, his loving kindness and his faithfulness toward the lost and the undone. Boaz knows his God, and he knows his purpose. And here's what you need to know at this point. That in the Old Testament, Yahweh God is often referred to as Israel's next of kin, Israel's Goel, the one who can, the one who will redeem his people in their losses, who will bring them back into the family mercifully, making room for them despite circumstances that they've even brought upon themselves. He will take their burdens upon himself. He will pay their debts as his right and as his responsibility. He will make even the foreigner a part of his family to be faithful. Boaz is an icon of the divine Goel, our God who is our kinsman redeemer. The faithful, the honorable redeemer of the wayward and pitiful people God loves and to whom he is committed. The God who promises and provides a home for a homeless people. The God who saves his own even from themselves. The paths they've chosen consequences they've created the God who welcomes the hapless outsider why because of his chesed his loving kindness and faithfulness because of who he is and I also want you to see that the marriage between Boaz and Ruth is an icon too this is a vivid foreshadowing of what Paul will talk about what we'll find out is true as we listen to John's revelation. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus and the church, the kinsman redeemer of an outsider people, otherwise cut off from a future and a destiny who are instead included in a family, included in an inheritance. And this destiny is indeed a marriage feast as the bride of Christ. That's what John sees. And all of this is true not because we're worthy, but because we're wanted. We're wanted, not because we're lovable, but because our divine Redeemer is love. This same light, again, refracts all over Scripture. You know, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he teaches us to understand even our own marriages as an icon of this reality of a groom and a bride who give themselves up for something greater. As I close, I want you to just for a minute try to imagine, try to picture again yourself being transported to a small gathering of Bethlehemites. It's hard for us to imagine it, to see it, but I want you to imagine, if you can, a couple hundred years before Jesus, among a few extended families who are packed into a dimly lit synagogue, and they are hearing the story again. They're hearing the story of Ruth one more time, and they're marveling that this hapless foreigner becomes a hometown girl, embraced by this generous and honorable man in a dishonorable time. And they're marveling that against all odds, she became the great-grandmother of King David, who himself is the least likely king among a lineup of strapping brothers. This is our God who keeps blowing our minds and changing our expectations and showing us what faithfulness, what chesed looks like. What this intimate gathering, had you been a part of it, couldn't have known is that Ruth 
would be more than David's great-grand. Or that David wouldn't be the last and best shepherd king. What you and they couldn't know is that your own Bethlehem in Judea was never more than about 200 inhabitants. It would become a birthplace of hope again. It would become ground zero for the redemption, for the welcome, for the inclusion, for the salvation of outsiders like you and me. Bethlehem again. Become the hope of the whole world, this house of bread, the historical place from which all humanity, starved by the perennial famine of sin and self-interest, will receive the bread of life. As we prepare our hearts to hold out our hands again for living bread today. As the Lord puts a little Bethlehem in our hands, we as aliens to the covenant who are brought in by love, let's listen for Ruth's story, even in Jesus' promise in John 6, from which so much of our understanding about what we're about to receive uh, comes. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will never cast out. So friends, let's come again today with open hands to the bread of heaven and to receive the story bigger than we can imagine it. Let's turn this this beautiful story to which we belong again and to see fresh light hitting it as we come together. It may just feel like another Sunday, but it's not. It's part of us receiving yet again the inheritance, the redemption that our great God has provided for us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Do you believe it? We need your help, Lord, to believe it continually. We see, even in our mostly privileged lives, we see and we feel the darkness. We feel our lives lived against the blackness. But Lord, we know there's a beauty that you're ever casting light upon. We pray that we would receive it today. Lord, that that you would help us by that light to see you, to see each other in a different light. Lord, we want to open our hands again today and trust you that you will feed us and that it will be enough. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.